Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the histories of the smallest nations on Earth, or microstates as they're known. These are the countries that are very, very tiny. I mean, obviously, they're kind of, kind of in the name there. Um, of, the, of the 193 uh, member states recognised by the United Nations, we're going to talk about the five smallest members plus one non-member observer state, which we'll obviously come to in due course. So six states in total, six nations, the smallest on Earth, with a combined area between the six of them, right? If you, if, you, if you jammed all these six nations, their land area together, it would fit very comfortably inside of Dublin or Philadelphia. That's how tiny these nations are. They are dwarfed by most major international cities, and some of them are smaller than major international airports. It's a fascinating, to- it's, it's fascinating topic. How did these tiny nations come to be? How did they survive? Each one has its own history and set of reasons that they haven't been, you know, swallowed up by various bigger neighbouring nations. Um, in some cases, because of natural geographic factors. Um, when I mean, for instance, the most obvious one are their island nations. Uh, other times, it's because of weird legal situations arising from history, uh, sometimes the result of, of political or military conflict from hundreds of years ago. Or even in one case, just because the right person befriended the right conqueror at the right time. So today, we're going to be getting across uh, brief histories of Liechtenstein, San Marino, Tuvalu, Nauru, Monaco, and of course, the Vatican City, the smallest nation on earth. And we'll seek to uncover the reasons that these minuscule nations still exist in today's world. I mean... One of the one of these nations is so small that you you could ride across it in three hours, which I have done. Uh, another one of them is so small that in the same time you could actually circumnavigate it. You could walk all the way around it in three hours. And uh, the last one that we're going to talk about, the Vatican City, as I'm sure you know, is so small that you could walk around it in thirty minutes. I started reading about microstates uh, after getting an email from alert listener Anna Isabel Texera, who uh, who sent through a great big long list of ideas, including a suggestion I talk about the history of micro micronations. Fascinating topic. Here we are. Thank you, Anna Isabel. Good on you, mate. But lots to get across today, as ever. So here we go. Let's get stuck in. Let's begin talking about the smallest nations on Earth and their histories. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1719 uh, for our first micronation here, to the official establishment of the Independent Principality of Liechtenstein, which took place on the 23rd of January, as I say, in 1719. Now, Liechtenstein, in case you don't know, it's a small sliver of land. It's kind of long and thin, uh, and it's between uh, Switzerland and Austria, nestled between these two countries. It's around 160 square kilometres in size, um, only slightly bigger than Denver International Airport, um, and I've been there. It's lovely, as I say, nestled between these two nations, uh, mountains to the east, river, uh, river to the west. Um, and while I was there, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, I rode a bike from one end to the other. Long ways, I made out, from the, the longest point possible to go ride in a straight line across the country, uh, north to south. And uh, this obviously lets me make the completely true statement that I have ridden across an entire country in a day, in three hours, even if it only was, you know, 30 kilometres. Anyway... To this day, it is still an independent nation, despite its tiny size, despite having a population of under 40,000 people, despite using Swiss money. Um, By the way, like Switzerland, it is an extremely expensive nation to visit. 
But why? Why is this tiny sliver of land still an independent nation in the modern era? How has it not been eaten up or, or incorporated by a larger neighbour? Here's the story of Liechtenstein. Since 1396, much of what would later go on to become the Principality of Liechtenstein, um, it was under the direct control of the Holy Roman Emperor. It was a direct, uh, a direct holding of the Holy Roman Empire known as the County of Vaduz. Um, however, in the 17th century, the Liechtenstein family, named after Liechtenstein Castle, which is found, interestingly enough, not in Liechtenstein, but actually in Austria, the Liechtenstein family, they bought up a bunch of land, including the tiny lordship of Schellenberg, as well as the county of Vaduz. They bought this off the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Emperor. And in doing so, they founded the princely family of Liechtenstein. And they did this, broadly speaking, uh, for political reasons. They wanted a way to build and to bolster their power as a noble family. And in 1719, the year I mentioned before, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI united Schellenberg and Vaduz, the Liechtensteinian holdings in, in this area, and elevated this newly created territory to a principality, further promoting the Liechtenstein family within the Holy Roman Empire, as they now became rulers of not only a sovereign member state within the empire, but also became a direct vassal of the emperor himself. So they sort of skipped the queue in terms of having access to their supreme overlord here. The princes of this new principality, I mean, didn't even bother visiting it for over a century, which goes to show it was just really a political excuse to empower the Liechtenstein family. They obviously didn't really care about this tiny sliver of land they'd bought. It just they cared about the titles that came with it. But all the same, this new principality was now a nation in its own right, as you know, one of the many within the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, but unlike so many other tiny nations that made up the Holy Roman Empire, this one actually stood the test of time. Now, what's the reason for that? Interestingly, it is because of... Well, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, it is because of Napoleon. As we discussed in episodes uh, 211, 212, get across them, Napoleon's campaigns effectively brought about the end of the Holy Roman Empire, of course. After the Battle of Austerlitz, the Holy Roman Empire was dissolved. Napoleon reorganized much of it into the new Confederation of the Rhine. But here's the thing. All the old feudal power systems were dissolved along with the empire. And, and you'll remember that the Liechtenstein family was a direct vassal of the Holy Roman Emperor, a position that didn't exist anymore. So while many other realms sort of collapsed in on each other and there were lots of amalgamations as all of these, you know, the, the different feudal power sharing deals from over the centuries were, were unpicked by Napoleon and, and the Confederation of the Rhine, Liechtenstein was a direct vassal of, again, the emperor, which wasn't a position that existed anymore. And so instead, it became a direct vassal of a different emperor, of Napoleon himself. And it stayed this way until the Confederation of the Rhine dissolved, after which Liechtenstein joined the German Confederation instead, and its new boss was the Emperor of Austria. So this tiny little sliver of land was passed around from emperor to emperor without ever having any kind of, of, of other feudal or later on uh, other, other political authority on, on top of it. So this tiny strip of land really has been handed about a fair bit over the years, but throughout it all, irrespective of their suzerain, the princely family of Liechtenstein managed to maintain its position as its own nation, rather than have it be swallowed up by another larger nation. In 1866, the Austro-Prussian War broke out. Now, Liechtenstein at this point was closely aligned with Austria, of course, um, but actually refused to fight other German speakers. And you, write, might, you might remember the famous story that emerged from the, the Austro-Prussian War in, in regards to Liechtenstein uh, from episode 100, get across it, how the 80-man Liechtenstein army 
was sent off to defend the borders from potential Italian incursions. And this 80-man army came back with 81 men after making a new friend. And uh, it's a very it's a very interesting story, very entertaining story. If you haven't heard it, go back and get across it. But uh, this was, I have to say, just about the only notable thing to have ever happened with the Liechtenstein Armed Forces. Uh, they disbanded two years later. Um, and interestingly, too, when Germany and Austria made peace, Liechtenstein was actually left off the peace treaty, meaning that, technically speaking... It's still at war with Germany on paper. Anyway, Liechtenstein has been a strictly neutral nation ever since, uh, just like Switzerland. It has uh, sat out of the First and Second World Wars. And in the 20th century, it has aligned itself much more closely with Switzerland than with any other nation. Today, as I mentioned, it still uses the Swiss franc as its currency. And as we move into the 21st century, it is fair to say that Liechtenstein is a very prosperous country indeed. I mean, in no small part due to its low corporate tax rates. Uh, this means that Liechtenstein has more registered companies in it than it does actual citizens. Uh, but the princely family, the Liechtenstein family, is still doing all of the underhanded political manoeuvres that they used to, even today. I mean, the, all the, the tradition has been passed down over the centuries. In 2003, Prince Hans Adam oversaw a referendum that would hand him more power than any other monarch in Europe. Uh, power to dismiss governments, veto laws. And just to make sure that he won, he threatened to privatise royal holdings for commercial use and then leave Liechtenstein if the referendum was rejected. Sounds a bit petulant to me, but hey, Liechtenstein loved their royal family, the referendum passed comfortably, and the princely family continued to make sure that its grip on power was not loosened, just as they did and just as they have been doing for hundreds of years. So it is interesting to see the fact that the the core principles on which Liechtenstein was founded, that is to say the political ambition and determination of the Liechtenstein princely family, it's interesting to see that they just haven't really changed in the intervening centuries. The princely family is still out there doing everything they can to increase their political power, no matter the cost. The tiny nation of San Marino claims to be the world's oldest republic. They say it was established in the year 301 CE by a Christian stonemason named Marinus, who built a monastery on a mountain. And since then, the story goes, San Marino has expanded to include the area around the mountain until its borders ended up in their current state over a thousand years later in 1463. Now, whether this story about Marinus is true or not, I mean, this is certainly up for debate, but... The mountain in question definitely has been inhabited for a very long time, since at least the 6th century, and its name, San Marino, does come from this potentially true story about Marinus. But we can move away from the potentially true to the definitely true and talk about the fact that San Marino is absolutely tiny, 61 square kilometres, roughly as big as Manhattan in New York. Uh, although San Marino is uh, it's kind of round, it's not long and thin like Manhattan. Uh, it's also an enclave. It is entirely surrounded on all sides by Italy. It has a population of just over 33,000 people, and it has weathered more than a few political and military storms in maintaining its independence over the years, let me tell you. For instance, in 1503, the son of Pope Alexander VI decided that he was going to invade and occupy San Marino, and he stayed there for a number of months until his dad died and the new pope, Julius II, took it back off him and restored uh, San Marino to its independence. 
Uh, or later, in 1453, when Pope Julius III's nephew tried to invade, just as the son of Pope Alexander had done the, all those years before, the, uh, the, the nephew of the Pope in 1453 invaded, but failed when his army, if you'll believe it, got lost in a thick fog. Uh, for a while in the 17th century, San Marino was a protectorate of the Papal States, uh, but it never truly ceded its independence, despite the occupation here and there. Um, but look, that's all well and good. Maintaining the independence of, of, of a small nation back then was a fair bit easier. There were heaps of small nations throughout Europe. I mean, just look at a map of the Holy Roman Empire. The question is, how did San Marino survive through to today? Well, once again, it comes back to one bloke and one bloke only. Can you guess whom? That's right, old mate Napoleon. Once again, although for reasons a little different to Liechtenstein this time around. In Liechtenstein's case, it was a legal matter, the transformation and reorganisation of feudal power structures. In San Marino's case, something entirely different. It was because uh, one of San Marino's captain's regent, a bloke named Antonio Onofri, managed to make friends with Napoleon when he visited and managed to convince the French emperor that San Marino should just stay independent. Imagine that. By becoming mates with Napoleon, Onofre guaranteed his nation's independence and survival as Napoleon agreed not just to respect, but also actively protect San Marino's independence. Apparently, Napoleon was won over by San Marino's history as a republic, um, he exempted San Marino from taxation, even offered to help them expand their borders, although the people of San Marino very politely declined. Um, and this knack for befriending powerful political figures served San Marino very well uh, in later years, particularly during the unification of Italy, as the revolutionary Giuseppe Garibaldi had been offered refuge there uh, in years previous, and so later on guaranteed San Marino's independence once he had carried out his uh, revolutionary unification. And, I mean, it didn't stop there as well with them trying to make friends in high places. Hilariously, San Marino once wrote to Abraham Lincoln in 1861 and proposed an alliance between the US and San Marino, and offered Lincoln honorary citizenship of San Marino. Apparently, this letter that was sent to Lincoln was written in perfect Italian on one side and uh, rather imperfect English on the other. But all the same, Lincoln graciously accepted the offer. And even today, the two nations are officially described to be on excellent terms. Like Liechtenstein, San Marino stayed neutral during the two world wars, although it did have some links to Mussolini's regime before the Second World War began and uh, was ultimately occupied by Allied forces in 1944, although its independence was later restored. And today, San Marino remains an independent nation, a unitary assembly independent diarchic directorial republic, apparently, that is its official government type, uh, with two captains regent as the heads of state. Now, these two captains regent are generally taken from opposing political parties. They serve six-month terms. And if this sounds familiar to you, it is because this system of government harks all the way back to the days of the Roman Republic and its consuls. So it really is fascinating to see the way that ancient political systems can still come alive in the modern political landscape. Finally, despite its tiny size, San Marino and its captain's regent actually made history just this year in 2022. While there have, of course, been various heads of government, uh, prime ministers and, and the like, uh, that in recent years have been openly gay, 
The San Marino Captain Regent Paolo Rondelli became history's first openly gay head of state after his election in April 2022. So, despite being one of the smallest nations on earth, San Marino, even today, is still writing itself into the history books. For our next microstate, we go from Europe all the way over to the middle of the Pacific, to the tiny island nation of Tuvalu. Tuvalu is found about halfway between Australia and Hawaii, and it consists of three reef islands and six atolls spread out across hundreds of thousands of square kilometres of ocean. And while its total land area is tiny, if you go by economic exclusive zone, the marine area that sovereign nations have special rights to uh, between territorial waters and open ocean, Tuvalu rockets right up into the top 40 largest on Earth. Uh, But if we are just talking about land, which is what we're doing with this episode, Tuvalu is instead the fourth smallest nation on the planet with a total area of just 26 square kilometres. It is one quarter the size of Disney World in Florida. With a population of just under 12,000 people, 60 of which live in the capital Funafuti, Tuvalu really is an absolutely tiny nation, except for the fact that the area between its nine islands obviously once again spans a huge amount of of, of ocean. Um, Most of Tuvalu has been inhabited for thousands and thousands of years. At least eight of the nine islands are thought to have had people living on them since a a major Polynesian migration around 3,000 years ago, although it might have honestly been even longer than that. Uh, In any case, Polynesian people would have arrived in Tuvalu on great big catamaran-like canoes or canoes with outriggers, navigating by using the stars and the waves and the wind, uh, alongside a rich oral tradition of navigational knowledge and and techniques that was passed down from generation to generation. Tuvaluans travelled and traded throughout Polynesia after setting up on these islands and uh, and even came into conflict with those from other neighbouring islands such as Samoa and Tonga, uh, and at one point Uh, Tuvalu was very likely under Tongan control in the 13th century, but ultimately regained its independence, it's thought, in the 15th century and continued to repel Tongan invasions and incursions thereafter. But as we move through the centuries and specifically into the 17th century, and even more specifically, if you like, on the 16th of January, 1658, Tuvalu was first sighted by Europeans when the Spanish Alvaro de Mendaña sighted and charted the island of Nui. Other European explorers also charted the islands that make up Tuvalu in the coming centuries, although very few of them actually landed on them because it was it was difficult to approach the atoll safely. But of course, it wasn't long before visiting European sailors and missionaries and colonists began to exploit Tuvalu for their own gain. Whalers used it as a landing place, melting down blubber from the whales that they'd killed and replenishing their stores and, and, and whatnot by bartering with the locals. And traders set up shops on the islands, often as part of a larger trading company looking to represent itself, making sure it had a presence on these remote islands. And I'm sorry to say that it didn't end there, because in the 1860s, Peruvian sailors sailed across the Pacific, engaging in what's known as blackbirding, the duplicitous or coerced recruitment of Pacific Islanders as workers. This practice was widespread throughout the Pacific and it involved tricking and threatening and sometimes even kidnapping people from local populations of various Pacific islands in order to sail away with them on board and put them to work elsewhere. And of course, uh, the other poison that arrived on the shores of Tuvalu around this time was the influence 
of Christian missionaries who set themselves up and established the Church of Tuvalu, which still uh, still is around today. Anyway, Britain claimed Tuvalu as a protectorate in 1892, and these days Tuvalu is still a member of the Commonwealth of Nations and still has King Charles III as its monarch. Into the 20th century, the British established laws and law enforcement on the islands, mandating things like school attendance for young children. During the Second World War, Tuvalu was an important Allied staging ground for preparing attacks on Kiribati, which was held by the Japanese at the time. Um, but these preparations were absolutely devastating to the natural environments of the islands, felling trees and clearing land for things like runways. And Tuvalu has had to recover uh, since the Second World War and, uh, like so many other European colonies, began down the path towards self-government at this time as well, which was finally achieved in the 1970s when it was ultimately separated from the United Kingdom after years and years of very slow and very ponderous political reform. And today... It remains an independent, self-governing nation, although its future faces a huge threat, an existential threat, in fact. Because due to the effects of climate change, Tuvalu is at risk of being wiped off the map entirely by rising sea levels. Even now, two of the nine islands that make up Tuvalu are being swallowed up by the sea, and as almost the entire nation sits at about three metres above sea level, it is up to the rest of the world to ensure that the fourth smallest nation on Earth doesn't get any smaller. We stay in the Pacific for our next microstate, Nauru, which is only a little bit smaller than Tuvalu, although there is a very key difference in these two island nations. Tuvalu, as I mentioned, is made up of nine tiny islands spread out across the Pacific, whereas Nauru is one single island with a population of just over 10,000 people. Unlike Liechtenstein and San Marino, which have, you know, complicated political histories to explain why they're so small, it is a lot easier to understand why Nauru is the size that it is, and that is because its size is determined by, you know, where the land meets the water. Nauru is found northwest of Tuvalu, northeast of Australia, in the Central Pacific, and it really is very, very bloody small. 21 square kilometres, roughly the size of Toronto's airport. And uh, like Tuvalu, Nauru's history stretches back thousands of years, but it wasn't Polynesians that first settled the island, rather it was Micronesians. Uh, it's believed that Nauru and Nauruans spent much of their history in near total isolation, unlike Tuvaluans who travelled about from island to island and visited neighbours. Um, Nauruans aren't believed to have done that. The, the reason for this is the Nauruan language is very different from languages that are found on, on the nearest neighbouring islands. And the 12-pointed star that you'll find on Nauru's flag represents the 12 clans that lived on the island across its history. Uh, for thousands of years, the people that lived on Nauru farmed fish. They captured these fish from the ocean, introduced them to fresh water, and bred them in the Buada Lagoon, the island's only lake. They also ate the fruit of coconut and screw pine trees and generally lived in relative harmony for thousands of years until, I mean, can you guess what happened? The Europeans arrived, as ever, first sighting the island in 1798, and this, of course, changed the history of Nauru forever. Trading vessels and whalers began to stop off on the island from the 1830s onwards, taking on supplies and fresh water. And for these things, the Europeans traded 
alcohol and firearms, which, you know, always make a good combination. And sadly, this fatally disrupted the long-standing culture of Nauru. Eventually, the relatively peaceful coexistence of the 12 clans on the island was brought undone by infighting and civil war, thanks to the booze, thanks to the guns. And this fighting wiped out around a third of the island's total population. The worst of the conflict, the Nauruan civil war, lasted from 1878 until 1888, and Nauru's population fell from 1,400 to just 900 people as a result. The war was ultimately brought uh, brought to an end when the island island was officially annexed by the imperial German government. The Germans confiscated all the guns that the Nauruans were using to fight. Almost 800 guns spread out around 900 people, uh, very nearly one per person on the island. And after that, the Germans then went straight back to the colonists' handbook. They sent missionaries over and they started, started to strip the island of all of its natural resources. In 1900, uh, phosphate was discovered on the island and the Germans ripped as much, of it, as much of it as they could out of the ground. And even today, Nauru's natural environment is struggling to recover from the damage done by the phosphate strip mining that lasted well into the 20th century. Germany lost control of Nauru during the First World War. It was captured by Australia on behalf of Britain, and then Britain picked up where Germany left off with the phosphate mining, leaving Australia in charge to oversee the operations. Um, and the Second World War wasn't much kinder to, to Nauru either. It was attacked by Axis forces that were looking to disrupt Allied phosphate supplies, and then it was captured outright by the Japanese in 1942, who deported over a 1,000 locals to work as forced labourers. The Japanese eventually surrendered the island to Australia at the end of the Second World War, and in the post-war era, Nauru has been dominated by Australia ever since. Australia was essentially put in charge of administration of the island while Nauruans themselves campaigned for independence, which they eventually achieved in 1968 when Nauru was granted full independence, becoming the world's smallest independent republic and then later joining the United Nations in 1999. But the year before Nauru became independent in 1967, they paid 21 million Australian dollars for all of Britain's phosphate mining equipment that had been left behind on the island. And for a while there, Nauru was very wealthy and very prosperous as they continued to dig phosphate out of the ground. They had quite a good go of things there for a while, but then eventually, before the end of the 20th century, the phosphate ran out and left behind nothing but huge environmental damage spread out across almost 80% of the island. It rendered this area uninhabitable. So with the phosphate running out, Nauru found new ways to make money. It briefly became a favoured spot for money laundering, although now it has taken a new form of income, one that reflects very poorly not just on Nauru, but perhaps even worse on my country, Australia. Australia maintains several prison camps on Nauru. They are called processing centres, but I'm going to call them what they are, prison camps for asylum seekers, and these so-called illegal immigrants are sent there for processing. Nauru is paid handsomely for allowing us to have these camps there, and over the years the Nauruan governments have very happily accepted Australia's money to let us build and operate them. Nauruans don't pay any form of personal tax, and 95% of the working population is employed by the government. With no phosphate to dig up and sell, Nauru just doesn't have great options when it comes to revenue. So it has become, for all intents and purposes, dependent on Australia for its very survival. You could, I think, call it a client state of Australia. 
And our prison camps, I am deeply ashamed to say, are a big part of what props up Nauru's economy, which without Australia's money would almost certainly collapse. But rather than support a regional neighbour, a small nation in need of aid and assistance, rather than support them in a positive way that is, that is good for the world, we send desperate, forsaken people there to rot in these hellish, deplorable camps. It is a stain on my country's reputation and history. It is something that I am deeply ashamed of as an Australian. But it is a big part of the story in the modern era of Nauru, which, despite its reliance on Australia, remains the third smallest independent nation on Earth. And I'm sure you're with me in hoping that, after over a century of exploitation, better and brighter things are in Nauru's future. Back in Europe now, we travel to a tiny strip of coastline near the border between France and Italy, where the absolutely tiny microstate of Monaco is found. Monaco is just two square kilometres. It is smaller than Central Park in New York City, but it still manages to squeeze in a population of almost 40,000 people. It is a very wealthy nation. It is famous for its opulent casino, its Formula One racing track, and as I say, it's absolutely absurd wealth. 30% of Monaco's residents are millionaires. Monaco is so rich that a few years ago, the average price of a single square metre of real estate broke the 100,000 euro mark. But why is this little strip of coastline its own nation? How has it managed to maintain its independence through the modern age without being eaten up by France, which surrounds it on all sides other than the coast? Well, it all comes back to, no, not Napoleon this time, no, funnily enough, no, it all comes back to a really, really big rock. The Rock of Monaco is a huge monolith that stands out over the sea near a little, a little bay. And over the millennia, it has been lived on and fought over by all sorts of people. Even during prehistoric times, people used the, uh, the, the, the Rock of Monaco as a form of shelter. And by the time we get to, uh, to ancient history, recorded, recorded history, civilizations like the Phoenicians were using the Rock of Monaco and its bay as a small harbour. In the 6th century BCE, the Greeks established a little colony on the Rock of Monaco. They may have even built a temple to Heracles on top of it. Uh, Monaco came under Roman control after Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, episode 205, get across it. Uh, and it remained a little port town, again, benefiting from the natural geography of the area. But after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, Monaco changed hands quite a few times. Uh, it fell to the Ostrogoths, it was recaptured by the Romans later on, then it was fought over by the Lombards and the Franks in the medieval period. But during this time, Monaco slowly but surely saw people just leaving it. It eventually was almost completely abandoned. People just up and left, given the constant fighting in the area. Although, by the 11th century, the Ligurians had moved in, and this time they stuck around and Monaco was back on the mend. In 1191, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI granted control of Monaco to Genoa, and in 1215, construction on an enormous fortress on top of the Rock of Monaco began. And uh, this year, 1215, is widely considered the founding date in the city-state's formal history. The Grimaldi family seized control of Monaco in 1297, and uh, since then has controlled it more or less without interruption. There's been a few times where it's been taken off them, but broadly speaking, for, you know, what, 
eight, nine hundred years the Grimaldi family has been in charge of Monaco. It has remained an important naval base. It grew in wealth and prosperity as its sailors brought back loot and plunder from uh, from various campaigns. And in 1633, Monaco achieved full independence, artfully keeping both the Spanish and the French at bay, although back then it did control a, a much larger area than uh, than it does now. And this lasted all the way through till 1793, when Monaco was brought under French control, ultimately, in the wake of the French Revolution. Although this didn't last long, in 1814, it was restored to the Grimaldi family, and it was made a protectorate of the Kingdom of Sardinia. But uh, conflict with France, plus the unification of Italy, ultimately resulted in Sardinia giving up control of Monaco and other regions around it. And once again, Monaco became a sovereign nation in 1861, although this did come at a cost because in exchange for recognising its independence, France annexed all of the area surrounding Monaco that had once been part of its territory, greatly reducing its size. All the same, Monaco has remained independent ever since, and its wealth and prosperity has only grown and grown over the years. In 1863, the famous Casino of Monte Carlo was built, and it raised so much money that the Grimaldi princes uh, were able to stop collecting taxes from their citizens, and even today, Monaco has no income tax. Nonetheless, in 1911, uh, the ruling Grimaldi family was forced to make concessions to a revolutionary public and trade in their absolute monarchy for a constitutional one. And then after the First World War, France was given responsibility for the military defence of Monaco, a situation that remains to this very day. And while Monaco attempted to stay neutral during the Second World War, it did eventually fall in line with the Nazi-aligned Vichy France regime. In 1962, Monaco revisited its constitution to establish a Supreme Court and guarantee female suffrage and abolish capital punishment, propelling it into the modern era. And then in 1993, it joined the United Nations as a full member. And today, Monaco remains, as I mentioned, a very wealthy nation indeed, something of a tax haven uh, and a playground of the mega-rich. It's also, of course, a tourist hotspot at any given time. It's estimated that the tourists in Monaco outnumber the locals uh, by a ratio of four to one on average. And look, I was one of those tourists. Many years ago, I visited Monaco. It's fine. It's nice, I guess. It is the sort of place you could plan an afternoon around if you're traveling. Once again, it really is not very big. Finally, we come to the world's smallest sovereign nation, and as I've mentioned, I'm sure you're aware, it is, of course, the Vatican City. The Vatican City is so small. It is so, so tiny that when I went to visit it with my friend Adrian years ago, we took a wrong turn in trying to get to the main square, St. Peter's, and instead walked all the way around the country, circumnavigating it and entering the square from the opposite side. And this took us about half an hour. The Vatican City is half a square kilometre inside. It is about as big as the Pentagon and its grounds. It's barely a kilometre across at its widest point. And it is, of course, as I'm sure you know, the seat of the Catholic Church, found in the middle of the Italian capital city of Rome. And despite its tiny size, it is still a fully sovereign, independent nation. And its history is very interesting. Rome, obviously, has a history that dates back thousands and thousands of years. But the Vatican's history, as 
The Vatican City is a little shorter than that, but I'll give you the background. Back in ancient Roman times, the place where the Vatican can now be found was considered actually to be one of the nastier parts of the city. Uh, It was swampy and marshy, it was prone to flooding, and generally it was just a very unpleasant part of the city. The area was known as the Arga Vaticanus. Uh, It has kept this name, Vatican, all the way through to the present day. Anyway, the Arga Vaticanus, it improved as the Roman Empire flourished. The swamps were drained, villas and gardens were built, as well as a circus for charioteers. But then, in the 4th century CE, the Constantinian Basilica of St. Peter was built, a Christian temple known today as Old St. Peter's Basilica, to distinguish it from what stands there today. Uh, But thanks to the basilica and its position as the eventual seat of the Catholic Church, the area around it became more sought after and more heavily populated, leading to the Vatican ultimately, ultimately becoming a very nice part of the city. And as the power of the Catholic Church grew and grew as the centuries passed, the Vatican became not just a religious centre, but also a political one. It wasn't a city-state or anything like it. It was just a a, a seat of power for the Catholic Church. And for many, many years, the papal states based in parts of Rome, like the Vatican, controlled huge areas of the Italian peninsula. The Pope acted as both a religious and a political ruler. He didn't live in the Vatican at this point. It was a holding of the papacy, but he didn't live there. Instead, the popes used to live in a palace, the the Lateran Palace on the other side of Rome. But then in the 14th century, the popes moved to France during the Avignon papacy uh, before ultimately returning to Rome and taking up residency in the Vatican, as well as uh, Rome's Quirinal Palace uh, from then onwards. So the Vatican, it's safe to say, remained a very important part of the papacy's history, even as the old St. Peter's Basilica crumbled into ruin. Uh, In the 17th century, a new basilica was was built, the one that stands there today, St. Peter's Basilica, an immensely popular tourist destination. But as the years passed, the political power of the Pope and the Papal States diminished, particularly throughout the unification of Italy, which we've talked about a little bit today. Um, And this ultimately resulted in the capture of Rome in 1870, which led to a very interesting standoff between Italian nationalists and the papacy. The papacy retreated to the Vatican. The papal states had gone from ruling much of the Italian peninsula to almost nothing after the creation of the Kingdom of of, of Italy. And the reason I say almost nothing is because while the papacy centred itself in the Vatican, the Kingdom of Italy did nothing to move against it. So... Was the Vatican still the last remaining stronghold of the papal states as, a, as, a, as an independently controlled enclave here of the, of, of the papacy? Or was it part of the Kingdom of Italy just occupied by its former foes? Well, the deeply Catholic population of Italy didn't really want to go after the Pope too hard. And uh, while the Italian government confiscated almost all the land and property that had been formerly held by the papal, stale, papal states elsewhere... They left the Vatican alone. And so between 1870 and 1929, it was something of a stalemate. During this time, the popes were more or less left to their own devices in the Vatican. And all throughout this period, the papacy continued to refuse to recognise the legitimacy of the Kingdom of Italy. But as much as Catholics generally love to live in the fantasy land at the best of times, the real world political situation told a very different story and the Kingdom of Italy was well and truly in charge of things. The papacy had no political power anymore. It didn't control any land. It didn't govern any people. Politically speaking, it was a shadow of its former self. But it was, of course, 
still in charge of the largest organised religion on earth. And so, in 1929, the papacy and the Kingdom of Italy finally came to terms after, after negotiations. The Lateran Treaty established the Vatican City as an independent, if infinitesimally small, but still independent nation, which it has remained ever since as a unitary Christian theocratic elective absolute monarchy. So technically speaking, the Pope isn't just the head of a religion, he is also, even today, a head of state, even if that state is roughly the same size as the Mall of America. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is a brief tour of the histories of the six smallest nations on Earth. I do enjoy doing these sort of like list episodes almost. Uh, they, they go down real smooth. So if you've got a, uh, I mean, we've done a couple of them, right? Like we've done, what, uh, history's weirdest deaths, uh, history of some popular sayings, uh, famous last words, that sort of thing. So if you've got a historically related list of, of things that you'd like me to have a look at, I'd love you to get in touch. Uh, send in your ideas, halfhousehistory.net, contact form there, of course. Uh, as well as links to uh, sites where you can help to support the show, Merch Shop, uh, the Patreon. Uh, thank you to all the Patreons, uh, old and new, uh, some returning, some signing up for the first time. Great to have you. Uh, appreciate all of you uh, helping to support the show and, of course, gaining access to all sorts of uh, super special... Se- mm. I was going to say secret. It's not secret. It's all very transparent. You know exactly what you're getting when you sign up, uh, which includes exclusive merch. Only way you can get your hands on that if you want to sign up a patron. Thank you so much to the people doing that. But I say it every week and I'm going to say it again. The best way to support the show is simply by spreading the word. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Tell your nerdy mate who's into geography that wants to learn all the facts about these small nations so they can give people the well actually with the best of them when talking about San Marino and Tuvalu and all the rest of it. Uh, And you'd be doing me a great favor, even if you'd be doing yourself a disservice as that, you know, presumably an insufferable friend becomes even more insufferable uh, after having listened to this podcast. Anyway, that's that for another week of Half Fast History. See you back here next week for more nonsense. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one, all about micronations. That's what we've been talking about this week. So this question is very fitting. It comes to us from Nika Finland, who asks, is the reason that small countries like Monaco have been historically richer than bigger countries that they have smaller populations and therefore their populations have a bigger chance of winning the lottery? (laughs) 